Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Sargon of Akkad, who was an ancient Mesopotamian ruler who forged the first known empire in human history. Now, this happened a very bloody long time ago, as you might expect, because obviously, you know, you had to get up very early if you wanted to do something like be history's first ever emperor. Humans really do like to conquer and subjugate each other, so it was bound to happen before very before too long. And Sargon, he lived over 4,000 years ago. He rose from humble beginnings to rule over a vast, for the time at least, extent of territory as he conquered Mesopotamia, which for the most part, as you may know, is in modern-day Iraq. But not only this, not only was he in the business of conquering this realm, he also reformed and developed and improved it and improved the lives of the people who lived at his subjects. He was a remarkably effective and successful leader who ruled this new empire for over 50 years after uh, after forging it. Infrastructure, commerce and innovation, all these things and more were, were hallmarks of Sargon's reign over his empire, the first in history, as I say. Uh, and it's known to us today as the Akkadian Empire. We're going to learn a lot about ancient history today. And, and when I say ancient, I, I really do mean properly ancient. We're going back past classical history all the way into the Bronze Age today. But luckily, despite the millennia, the huge amount of time between Sargon and today, his story has survived, thanks in no small part to the fact that the clay tablet was used to record information back then, and clay is obviously a little bit hardier than things like papyrus or paper, isn't it? even if it isn't as easy to, you know, make books out of it. Anyway, look, I really enjoy getting across properly ancient history like this. It's very different from the, you know, the well-sourced history of the last few centuries, however, and um, that means there is a fair bit of interpretation, and I guess what you could call educated guesswork with history that is as old as this. So I'm sorry if not everything we talk about today is 100% spot on. I've done my due, my due diligence as best I can, but I'm not going to I'm not going to claim that I'm you know 100% confident that I've got it all right. So, so sorry if I've stuffed anything up. Very keen to hear your feedback in case uh, I've sort of missed the mark with anything, but again, have done my best. Anyway, a lot to get across as ever today, so let's get to it. Here we go with the story of Sargon of Akkad. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back, about as far back as we've ever been on this podcast, to the Middle Bronze Age. This is around the 24th and 23rd centuries BCE. That is a very bloody long time ago, over 4,000 years. Uh, I mean, look, at the time of Sargon, the Great Pyramid of Giza was only... I was going to say, yeah, only, only 200 years old. I guess a mm, couple of things to point out here. First, I mean, the usual reminder that, you know, we're before the Common Era. We're counting years down, not up as time goes on. Sargon's reign began in 2334 BCE, and uh, the next year was 2333, not 2335. Um, but the other thing, the thing I really want to talk about here is we're going so far back in history today that we can, you know, start saying things like I just said, the Great Pyramid of Giza was only 200 years old, which is a, a, a ludicrous thing to say when you think about it. I mean, things like today, things like the White House and the Brandenburg Gate were built 200 years ago, and we wouldn't say only when we're talking about them. I mean, as I've talked about before on the show, 
We tend to compress history the further we go back into it. You might remember episode 148, Get Across It, Ashurbanipal, the king of the universe, another famous Mesopotamian king who conquered the pants off of ancient Mesopotamia, just like Sargon. He and Sargon are generally seen to have been from the same era of history, temporally speaking. They can't have been too far apart from each other, right? Wrong, mate. Dead bloody wrong. There are about 1,700 years between the reigns of these two blokes. That's like saying Julius Caesar and Napoleon were basically contemporaries. So it makes you think, will people actually think that 4,000 years from now? Will the march of time make future humans amalgamate the last couple of centuries as we do with ancient history? And, you know, have future students of history wondering why Magellan didn't just fly around the Earth in a jet plane instead of sailing, or why Abraham Lincoln didn't just nuke the Confederacy. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to consider, and it's something to keep in mind as we talk about history that is, as I say, in every sense of the word, truly ancient. Sargon lived over 4,000 years ago, an incomprehensibly long time ago. But luckily, we have a reasonably well-rounded account of his reign, his achievements, and his approach to leadership and governance as he ruled as the first recorded ruler of an empire. Unfortunately, however, what we don't have is a good account of his birth or his childhood or his upbringing. We know that Sargon's rule began at around 2334 BC, as I said, so it's relatively safe to, to assume that he was born before that, you would think. But for the most part, all we really have to go on is myth and legend, and I certainly don't vouch for the historicity of this next bit, but it is still well worth getting across to give you a bit of context as to as, as to the, the overall story, the the, the the legacy of this fellow Sargon. Right, so here's the story. It goes, I mean, again, largely myth and legend, but this is the story. Sargon was born as the illegitimate child of a priestess of the ancient god Inanna, also sometimes known as Ishtar. Uh, I should mention as well, his name wasn't Sargon at this point. Sargon was the name that he took for himself later in life after coming to power. We don't actually know Sargon's birth name. He's only known to history as Sargon, um, which is thought to have come from Sarukan, which means legitimate king in the language that we today refer to as Akkadian, although Akkad doesn't actually exist yet. You won't be surprised. Anyway. Uh, his mum, a priestess, uh, she had to hide the pregnancy, and when she finally gave birth, she couldn't keep her new son, and so she went down to the Euphrates River. She put him in a basket and set him adrift. And you're going at this point, whoa, 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 wait one second, hang on, I've heard this story before. Sargon, he's just he's ripped this bloody story for Moses here, the whole baby in a basket thing, this is from Exodus in the bloody Bible, mate. What's he doing ripping off another story? Well, I'll stop you there, because... It's not the Akkadians and the Sumerians and the ancient Mesopotamians more broadly ripping off the Old Testament or the Torah here, it is, believe it or not, actually the other way around. That's how long ago this happened. That's how long ago Sargon lived. Exodus was written in around 600 BCE, a millennium and a half after Sargon. And in this creation of the, you know, in the creation of this Jewish and later Christian mythology, the people who authored Exodus undoubtedly borrowed the legend of Sargon's birth and instead applied it to Moses. So it's telling stories like Sargon's that we, you know, when we start to pick apart the messy, mixed up slush of ancient history and myth and legend, and we realize that there's Bible old and then there's actual old and Sargon firmly falls into the latter camp. This bloke, this bloke doesn't just predate you know, Christian and Jewish mythology that's in the Bible. He predates it by centuries, by almost millennia. Anyway, 
There, of course, is no evidence to suggest that Sargon's baby in a basket origin story is true, just like Moses. It is probably just a made-up bit of mythology. But the story continues all the same. The baby was carried downriver in the Euphrates uh, to the Sumerian city of Kish and it was, fis- uh, was fished out of the river uh, by a bloke whose name was Aki. Now, Aki was a gardener for the king of Kish, whose name was Ur-Zababa, and Aki raised Sargon as his own. And again, how much of this is true? Very, very doubtful indeed. It does seem like Sargon started in life as a gardener, but overall, that is probably the only part of his origin story that is actually based in reality. And without that out of the way, we can move on to some harder historical facts here. At this point in history, we're going to zoom out and look at Mesopotamia as a whole. The area between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, modern-day Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, plus bits of Syria and Turkey, it's filled with city-states like Kish. There's Uruk, there's Nippur, there's Ur and Umma and Lagash and countless others, including, of course, the famous Babylon. Uh, And these city-states are often fighting wars with one another. They're conquering and seizing land. They're seeking better access to water or control over the best agricultural land in the region. So there's this constantly shifting web of alliances and wars, deals and betrayals amongst all these city-states as they each rise and fall, depending on which point in history you actually look at. But at this point, Kish was independent, it was autonomous, reasonably prosperous, um, with King Urzababa doing, you know, a decent job of things by all accounts. And one way or another, as young Sargon got a bit older, he rose through the political ranks within Kish to go from being a gardener, like his, you know, supposedly adopted, adoptive father, to become Urzababa's cupbearer. Now, how he did this isn't satisfactorily explained by history. We are leaving behind myth and legend at this point. But the cupbearer was a very big bloody deal indeed. A lot more than just, you know, the lackey who serves drinks that you might be imagining here. No, the king's cupbearer was a closely trusted ally, a confidant, an advisor to the king. So Sargon, he's done very bloody well for himself here. He's risen through the ranks until he has the ear of the king, right? Not not bad for someone who, you know, baby in a basket story notwithstanding, started off in life as a humble palace gardener. However, trouble is brewing on the horizon when the king of Umma, another city-state, began a campaign of conquest to the south of, uh, of Kish. King Lugal Zagezi began to march northwest from Umma up along the Euphrates, conquering city after city as he went. And before long, he had his sights set on Kish. And this really seemed to have done a number on poor, poor Urzababa, who is worried that his city of Kish is going to fall to, uh, to King Lugal Zagezi from the south. Now, he's so he's that panicked about it. He's so overwhelmed with panic at the thought of Lugal Zagezi's approach to the point that, I mean, you got to feel sorry for the bloke, really, because the scribes and the historians went out of their way to record the fact that this bloke was so panicked about what might happen to him that, are you ready for this? They specifically recorded for the rest of human history to enjoy the fact that King Urzababa pissed himself in fear. Not really what you want to be remembered for, wetting your pants in panic at the thought of an oncoming army, but that is the legacy of King Urzababa. So the next time you're worried about people remembering that you did something really embarrassing one time, and they probably don't remember it, they've probably forgotten it even if you haven't, just remember that at least you're not King Urzababa of Kish, whose greatest historical legacy is the fact that he pissed himself in fear at the thought of the oncoming army from Umma. 
He also seems to have accompanied this panic with paranoia and began to suspect those that were close to him of betrayal, including, of course, his cupbearer, Sargon. He therefore decided to rid himself of Sargon by sending him as a messenger to Lugal Zagezi with an offer of peace and, rather more important to Sargon, a request that Lugal Zagezi kill Sargon after he's delivered the message. Never mind, you know, don't bloody shoot the messenger. So, look... Maybe Sargon was always in Lugal Zagezi's pocket, I don't know, it doesn't seem likely, but after arriving and giving the message to the King of Umar, Sargon did indeed end up just switching sides when Lugal Zagezi decided, you know, not to kill him. Look, perhaps he was a traitor, perhaps he just decided he'd rather work for a bloke who, you know, didn't piss himself the first sign of trouble, who knows? But Sargon ultimately turned his coat and aided, aided Lugal Zagezi in capturing Kish from Urzababa. So Urzababa's worst fears have just been real. I mean, he's just... He's just finished cleaning himself up when what's this knock knock it's the army of Umar at the door oh my goodness I'm going to need another fresh pair of pants here because that's the end of him but what happens next is 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 interesting because we don't know exactly how or indeed indeed why it happened there are so many conflicting stories all bound up in myth and legend it's more or less impossible to say definitively again how and why this happened but we do know what happened the alliance between Sargon and Lugal Zagazi did not last there are two primary theories uh, as to what happened, as to what, you know, sort of drove a, a wedge between these two blokes. The first one is that Lugal Zagezi sent Sargon off as a lieutenant to continue the war of expansion on his behalf. Sargon, now with an army at his back, realised, well, no, I don't have to do that. I'll just turn around and start, I'll fight you right back, mate. Don't even worry about it. And instead turned his coat again and fight uh, and fought Lugal, fought Lugal Zagezi. Or alternatively, and this, you know, this explanation is, a little shorter and simpler, Sargon slept with Lugal Zagezi's wife. Either way, Lugal Zagezi's spewing. He's been, betra- he's been betrayed either way, either on the battlefield or in the bedroom. Who can say what's bloody worse, mate? And so these two quickly became bitter enemies. And let me tell you this, it doesn't work out too well for old mate Lugal Zagezi. He marched to meet Sargon and the forces that he'd gathered in battle, and he had his ass handed to him on a silver platter. Sargon captured Lugal Zagezi in the fighting, he bound him up in chains, and he dragged him to the city-state of Nippur. Now, this was a very calculated move on Sargon's part, as Nippur was sacred to the god Enlil, who Lugal Zagezi had invoked as his sort of patron god on his conquest. So, Sargon marches Lugal Zagezi through Nippur in chains, shaming him in front of his god. Absolute humiliation for poor Lugal Zagezi. What a way for his campaign to end, although after that We don't know if Sargon killed him or imprisoned him or just let him go. History is silent on that, but at least he didn't piss himself in fear. Uh, But now with Lugal Zagezi brought low and with Urza Baba of the wetted trousers out of the way, Sargon is in prime position here, mate, and he doesn't waste the opportunity. With his armies in tow, he takes control of both Kish and much of the land that Lugal Zagezi had already conquered. And by this stage, he's got quite a significant following. And this following only grew in the coming time. The reason for this as well, funnily enough, is thought to be Sargon's humble origins. Some things never change. We're talking about history that happened again four millennia ago. But class struggle was still a big part of the human experience back then, just as it is now. In these ancient Mesopotamian cities, the working classes resented the wealthy ruling classes, and this worked to Sargon's favour. Given his origin as a humble gardener, Sargon was able to portray himself as being very much in touch with the common man. And the ruling classes, they were known to seize and exploit land, work commoners as hard as they could and and reap all the benefits and the wealth for themselves. 
And I mean, here we are, four millennia later, the world is fraught with the same problems. You, you hate to see it. So Sargon had a strong and highly motivated following that were more than happy for this upstart gardener to shake things up. And that's just what Sargon did. In what was a highly unorthodox move, after rising to prominence, after conquering Kish and seizing Lugalzigazi's land, Sargon did something extremely out of the ordinary. Rather than settle down in Kish or Umar or wherever else, he travelled northwest up the Euphrates and he settled a new city altogether. This city is guessed to be somewhere around modern-day Baghdad, although we don't know for sure. And it was called, as you might have guessed, Akkad. Now, this approach was unheard of. Ordinarily, victorious kings from certain city-states would reap the spoils of war to benefit their own existing city. But Sargon didn't want to do that with, with Kish or, or anywhere else. He wanted to establish his own legacy, his own capital. And so he created Akkad. This became the seat of history's first empire, the Akkadian Empire, which Sargon would spend his life forging and then holding together. And in time, Akkad became an incredibly important and powerful city, as you can imagine, as the empire's capital. But I also should mention that I did, across, I did come across some theories that Sargon didn't actually found the city. He rather moved into it as a you know, relatively insignificant existing city-state. He made it its capital. I don't know which one is true. It could be either. It's safe to say, however, Akkad wasn't very important before Sargon came along, either because it was small and insignificant or because, you know, it didn't exist. But whatever the case was, once Sargon was all set up in Akkad, he didn't stick around for very long. He hit the road with his troops once again and began to conquer neighbouring city-states one after the other, adding them to his burgeoning empire. To the south, he marched through Mesopotamia between the Euphrates and the Tigris, captured cities like Ur and Umar and Lagash. He laid waste to the land surrounding them and he brought down their walls. East, across the Tigris, he fought the Elamites. North, near the Caspian Sea, he fought the nomadic Amorites. And west, he marched his troops all the way to the Mediterranean, to modern-day Lebanon and Turkey. Now, we don't have the most complete record of these campaigns. The, the nature of a lot of the sources we have on these events basically boils down to they happened. Um, but they're referenced throughout accounts of his life and, and, and times. And they also are used as a stand-in for numbered years like we use today. Let me explain. Um, for instance, one of the names of the years during Sargon's rule was the year in which Sargon destroyed Elam. So... You know, imagine that as your birthday. Oh, yeah, mate, on the, the, the 16th of May, year in which Sargon destroyed Elam. That's when I was born. Uh, in any case, these campaigns, they stretched from the Akkadian homelands in Mesopotamia all the way to the Taurus Mountains in modern-day Turkey, down the Lebanese coast, and perhaps even across the sea into Cyprus. There's archaeological evidence that indicates that Sargon may have visited Cyprus. So, and I, I, I mean, for the time, again, an incredibly far-ranging series of, uh, of campaigns and conquests here. However, I mean, I say conquests, he didn't add all of these territories to his empire. He wasn't ruling over Cyprus, even if he did visit it. The, the, the lands that he had a firmer control of back in Mesopotamia, they were hard enough to hold on to to begin with. They, they are beginning to resist his rule as these, uh, these wealthy ruling classes come back to the cities that, that, that have been conquered, attempt to throw off the, uh, the, the imperial rule of, uh, of Akkad. And so despite Sargon's popular support and his military might, uh, he had to deal with uh, quite a significant uh, undercurrent of, of hostility and rebellion and, and in many cases open uprising from the people that he ruled. So 
with these cities resisting his rule and attempting to re-establish their old autonomy and independence, Sargon is forced now to move on from conquering and campaigning and instead focus on maintenance. He has built the first empire the world has ever seen. Can he hold on to it? By the time he'd finished campaigning, the Akkadian Empire, it stretched from the Persian Gulf to where the Tigris meets the Diyala River and all the way across to where the Euphrates meets the Kabur. It is no Mongol Empire. It is no British Empire, certainly. But it's a damn good first go, particularly in an age where the infrastructure to maintain an empire, largely speaking, doesn't really exist. And this is where it gets really interesting with Sargon. History has had plenty of conquerors, many of them much greater than Sargon when it comes to their achievements. But all of these conquerors had the benefit of learning from the mistakes and the successes, I suppose, of the ones that went before them. And while leaders like Lugal Zagezi had united a few city-states here and there under single banners, Sargon had what was, for the time, a massive, sprawling, unprecedented empire to manage. Sargon had to innovate. He had to adapt. He had to explore new ways to maintain control over a far-flung group of disparate city-states to maintain order and peace and stability across a realm of more than 60 cities, most of which weren't used to vassaldom. How did he do this? He did it with decentralised, delegated rule at the hands of trusted Akkadian officials, backed up, of course, obviously, by a sizable Akkadian military contingent as well. After conquering a city, Sargon would assign it a governor, and he would leave a, a group of soldiers there, all of whom, including the governor, he knew he could rely upon for loyalty. And he also put family members into positions of power, like his daughter, Ened Huana, right? Uh, she was in charge of, uh, of a major city, Ur. Uh, Ened Huana ended up having quite a career, not just as a leader, but also as a writer as well. She, she's the first named writer known to history with poems and hymns attributed to her, although debate continues even today as to whether she did indeed write these. That is another story. But broadly speaking, Sargon did manage to stabilise and maintain his empire once he'd established it, although, of course, it wasn't always a, you know, a smooth process. There were rebellions, there were uprisings, there were cities that attempted to regain their independence. None of these had much luck, however, because the Akkadian imperial system, as early and as rudimentary as it was, largely speaking, it worked. Sargon did such a good job of governing his realm that very little, if any, real opposition to his rule flourished. And the Akkadian Empire, it grew strong, it prospered, it was what ended up flourishing. We've seen many empires of many different types throughout history, but this early attempt at it was... It was pretty bloody good. This decentralised, delegated approach to governance with loyal governors backed up by sizable military force ended up being a relatively successful model for early empire. And Sargon was the first to do it on this scale, the world's first emperor, really. But it wasn't just about maintaining power and control over his subjects and his realm. Sargon also began to look for ways to reform and modernise his new empire. The fact that it flourished wasn't just due to him establishing good and effective governance across his realm. No, there was so much more to it. For instance, I mean, first things first, his military. His empire needed a strong military to keep rebellious states in line, and Sargon made sure that he had one. He kept a fighting force of over 5,000 soldiers at the ready. And while they weren't 
highly trained professional soldiers, they were certainly more than the usual rabble of peasants who had had weapons thrust into their hands, often against their own will. Um, But it wasn't just the military. I mean, domestic and civilian reforms followed this. Uh, The standardization of weights and measures, a particularly significant uh, reform undertaken by Sargon throughout his empire. The standardization of weights and measures uh, aided commercial activity and trade throughout his realm. People were better able to exchange goods for fair rates, given that everyone was on the same page with, you know, the the weighing and the measuring thereof. And interestingly, this system that, that Sargon established went on to be the standard across Mesopotamia for the next thousand years or so, which really isn't too bloody bad in terms of longevity, hey? Additionally, Sargon also built a road network throughout his empire. He made it easier for people to travel between cities, which, of course, was another boon for traders and, and, and commerce. And another economic reform uh, brought about by Sargon was a new taxation system, which obviously, while still a far cry from the progressive taxation systems used today, was a lot more equitable for the poor than former taxation systems that had been rather more rather more oppressive. And in doing this, I think it's fair to say, again, we're sort of moving into the era of interpretation rather than just directly using uh, primary sources here. But I think it's fair to say that it seems that Sargon never really forgot his roots. He maintained broad support from the working classes throughout much of his realm for much of his reign. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he never really forgot the plight of the common worker and did what he could to make their lives at least a little bit better. Anyway, as the, uh, as the empire and its people prospered, uh, there was a renewed interest in art and the sciences, uh, which was, of course, encouraged by Sargon. And look, again, we're, we're speaking in terms of 4,000 years ago. It's not as if they were inventing paper and gunpowder, episode 143, get across it. But instead, they were finding out new or, or at least better ways to work with metal, with bronze and tin and copper and lead. They were improving their skills with pottery, which is a, a critical and often overlooked area of technological development. And the Akkadian Empire, believe it or not, even had rudimentary dental services. There is evidence of people having had their teeth drilled and crowned during this point in history. And on top of these uh, advancements in in the arts and the sciences, Sargon also built and built and built, not just roads, as I said, but everything else, granaries, warehouses, docks, huge irrigation systems with vast canals that that supplied water to to farmland up and down Mesopotamia and, of course, only increased the productivity of of, of agriculture and and helped to put food in people's bellies. but while we're talking about infrastructure and development, there's another thing I want to mention here very quickly. You'll remember I talked about Babylon earlier as one of the famous cities in this region, in Mesopotamia, but we haven't really mentioned it since. We haven't talked about how it played into Sargon's career as a conqueror. And that's because we are, once again, in a period before the rise even of Babylon. Babylon, of course, one of the most well-known ancient civilizations. And I mean, the Babylonian Empire would go on to be a, a huge political institution and Babylon would become the largest city in history. But that's a good 600 years away at this point. That is how far back we are going when we talk about Sargon of Akkad. 
Historians still argue about Sargon's exact role in Babylon's history. Um, some argue that he founded the city himself, that it didn't exist before he came along, although that does seem to be something of a minority view. The wider consensus seems to be that Sargon supported and developed the city and helped it on, helped it on its way towards future greatness under leaders such as Hammurabi uh, and, of course, its eventual fall to Cyrus the Great almost 2,000 years hence. Anyway... We'll, we'll get the chance to talk about Babylon in, in future episodes, um, but for now, I guess it's, it, you know, it's enough to say that uh, Sargon played a role, a debated role certainly, but a role in, uh, in the development uh, of Babylon in its, in its early days before it would go on to become, as I say, the largest city on the face of the planet, at least for a time. Finally, there's one more remarkable invention of Sargon's that uh, I find really, really interesting I want to share with you here, because it was he who established the world's first ever postal service. Even in a time before paper, in a part of the world where things like papyrus weren't around, Sargon still managed to get the post going. Now, how, you might think, everyone's using clay tablets back then, how are they whacking a stamp onto that and putting it in a post box. Well, what they did, right, they, again, using these classic clay tablets, people would write their messages, whatever they wanted, you, you know, very, write in a tablet, very normal back then, that's how you'd read and write, of course. But you would then seal up this tablet in a, for want of a better term, an envelope, which was also made of clay. You then write the name and the address of the person you're sending it to. You close up the envelope and you put your seal into the clay to make sure it hasn't been tampered with once it arrives and you send it off. And now, of course, it would be very obvious if the mail had been opened. It's not like they could just sticky tape the broken envelope back together. And so all of a sudden, the people of the Akkadian Empire had a way to send and receive private correspondence. So it's fair to say that Sargon forged maintained and also developed a mighty and a prosperous empire, something that hadn't yet been done in human history. And for that and that alone, he is an enormously important figure in history, even if he is an often overlooked one, just given the huge number of years between his life and ours today. But there's something else I want to touch upon here as we discuss the final legacy of Sargon of Akkad. And it's nothing to do with what he built or where he conquered or anything else like that. I've been trying to find a way to articulate this properly, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do better than famed historian Paul Krivacek and what he had to say about one extremely interesting and very important aspect of Sargon's legacy. Here's what Krivacek had to say. <clears throat> There had been Mesopotamian heroes before, of course. The famous kings of early Uruk, like Gilgamesh and his father Lugalbanda, were the protagonists of a series of fantastical accounts and tales of outlandish deeds that became mainstays of the Sumerian literary canon and were copied and recopied in scribal schools and palace scriptoria for centuries, sometimes millennia. But they belonged to the age of mythology rather than heroic legend. They told of intimate intercourse with the gods, battles with fearful monsters, the search for immortality, and extraordinary otherworldly adventures. With the advent of Sargon, his sons and grandsons, the tales become not necessarily more believable, but at least centred on the here and now of earthly life. 
Up until now, civilization based itself upon the belief that humanity was created by gods for their own purposes. The cities, the repositories of civilization, were divine foundations, having started, we guess, as sacred pilgrimage centers. Each city was the creation and the home of a particular god. It is as if real life was the one lived by the gods in the divine realm, while what went down here on Earth was a largely irrelevant sideshow. The Age of Sargon altered all that, switched the focus to the human world, and introduced a new conception of the meaning of the universe, one that made people, rather than gods, the principal subject of the Mesopotamian story. Humanity was now in control, men and women, became rulers of their own destiny. To be sure, people were still pious, they still presented sacrifices to the temples, offered the libations, performed the rites, invoked the gods' names at every opportunity, but the piety of the age now had a quite different flavour. So in saying this, Krivacek argues, quite reasonably I believe, that Sargon changed the way that ancient humans regarded themselves as the protagonists of the story of this planet. Previously, great mythical and legendary figures like Gilgamesh and his best mate Enkidu dominated much of humankind's storytelling in this region, really supporting the fact that the greatest heroes of old lived in this supernatural world where they came face to face with gods and monsters and all sorts of other things that are beyond the realm of of, of the real world. But now, humans and human achievement take centre stage. And it's difficult to argue that we don't see ourselves like that these days. Humans are nothing if not solipsistic. And while I'm not claiming that Sargon was single-handedly responsible for a shift in global human culture... His status as a human hero, a conqueror, a larger-than-life figure that was still very much flesh and blood, definitely changes the way that ancient Mesopotamians at least thought about themselves. Sargon fought and conquered and reformed and changed and achieved in the real world, and while he and his followers may have believed he did it with the grace of their gods, he still did it. He chased down his destiny as a great leader. The story of Sargon has lasted over 4,000 years, and hopefully it'll last countless millennia more. I mean, his empire didn't, of course. Sargon died around 2279 BCE, after more than five decades on the throne. And he left his empire to his son Rimush, who fought through more uprisings as rebellious city-states saw an opportunity in Sargon's death to re-establish their autonomy, Rimush died after nine years, and his brother Manishtusu took over, and the Akkadian Empire flourished further until under Sargon's grandson, Narim-Sim, it reached its apex. But everything ends, and as the Akkadian Empire passed into its fourth generation under Sargon's great-grandson, Shah Kalishari, it began to fall apart, as city-states broke off from the empire, successfully regained their independence, and then ultimately widespread famine and invasion by hostile neighbours caused the empire to collapse altogether. But in spite of this, Sargon became a monumentally famous heroic figure 
in Mesopotamian history, with countless generations of kings claiming Sargon as their ancestor in an effort to legitimize and bolster their reign. His story of heroic conquest and his long and prosperous reign resonated through the centuries, invoked by those attempting to conquer the Mesopotamian region, just as Charlemagne and the Franks, the Byzantine Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the Russian Empire, even Mussolini and Italian fascism in the 20th century sought to invoke the Roman Empire. Sargon was such a legendary figure, a great conqueror and successful emperor, that he influenced everything from the Mesopotamian kings that attempted to follow in his footsteps to a hugely important part of modern religious mythology. And it's easy for us to overlook, as everything Sargon achieved took place over 4,000 years ago, and the crush of centuries means that we have no problem mentioning Sargon, Hammurabi, Ashurbanipal, and Gilgamesh in the same breath, as though they were all mates or something. But in time, this might happen to us, and to our time. 4,000 years from now, Napoleon and Washington and Hitler and Henry VIII might all be lumped in together in the same way. Who knows? Sargon likely couldn't have ever foreseen the enormous cultural and political legacy that he and his empire, the first of its kind, would have on the development of human civilization. And even if that empire didn't stand the test of time, I mean, very few do, we're still here talking about him over 4,000 years later. And that, well, that is quite a legacy to have attained, I think. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Sargon of Akkad. And I do hope you enjoyed it. It's really good to get across some properly ancient history. I think there'll be more where this came from in coming weeks. So keep an ear to, I was going to say keep an ear to the ground, but I don't, I mean, I don't know how many of you actually, unless you're a snake, in which case that is probably how you listen to the podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of the Half House History family. Uh, Anyway, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way now to close out the episode, halfhousehistory.net, of course, is the website. You can find the contact form there. Thank you so much to all the people getting in touch. So many emails I get on a daily basis now, and I appreciate every single one of them. I read them all, of course. Thanks to all the people who are sending in topic suggestions or even just getting back in touch with some feedback. It is good to hear it. It's, well, read it, I guess. Uh, and I apologize. I can't get back to you all uh, individually. Just, again, a question of volume. If you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways to do it. Um, uh, there's a merch shop. I am cooking up some new merch ideas uh, slowly, slowly. Hopefully in the next couple of months, I'm going to put a timeline on it to try to get them out because I've got uh, quite a few irons in the fire with uh, a few different things at the moment. So merch is uh, not quite on the back burner, but on the, I would say, mid burner. But there might be some new merch items within the next couple of, uh, couple of months. And if you want to jump on Patreon, you can support the show, of course, patreon.com slash half history. I should mention, I never plug this. If you join uh, as a Patreon member, you get a discount code for the shop and the discount goes up with how much you... Uh, how much you pledge on Patreon. The, the higher tiers get a higher discount. So basically, I'm sure there's an infinite money glitch in there somewhere if you can crunch the numbers effectively enough. But uh, if you do want to support the show, you know, infinite money glitch or no, I do very much appreciate it. Thank you to all the patrons uh, who are uh, supporting the show week in, week out. And I hope you're enjoying all of the uh, all the bonus stuff, the early access, the show notes, the exclusive patron-only merch, of course, that's available to you there. But that's enough of that. Going to close out the episode, of course, this week with a question posed on Reddit. Looking forward to your company next week as we have more half-assed history lined up for you. But until then, 
a, I say we, it's just me. There's no we. It's like, it's, I, I get emails sometimes like, hey, we'd love to talk to you and your team about the team is, it's, it's just me, dude. Like I, I, I write research, I research then write usually, that's the usual order it goes in. I write then research and record, edit, publish everything on myself. So maybe I should not say we and make it sound like it's a harder job than it is. It's a kind of hard job. Anyway, I'm happy to do it for you. Thanks for tuning in. See you back here next week. Uh, until then, leaving you the question posed on Reddit, as I say, this one comes to us from Reddit historian Turtle456, who says, we only ever hear about ancient Mesopotamians. Why were young Mesopotamians such underachievers?